There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... George Saunders on his first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. And then historian Catherine Hughes with Tales of the Flesh in the Age of Decorum in Victorians Undone. George Saunders is the author of nine books, including 10th of December, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the inaugural Folio Prize and the Story Prize. He has received MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships and the Penn Malibu Prize for Excellence in the Short Story and was recently elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2013, he was named one of the world's 100 most influential people by Time magazine. And his debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, is what we're going to be talking about today. George, welcome to Little Atoms. Um, thank you very much for having me. What a pleasure. The novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, you're an acclaimed short story writer. This is a departure for you, both in the fact that it's a novel and it's also a historical novel. How would you describe Lincoln in the Bardo? Well, I heard somebody say once a novel is a, a long work of prose that has something wrong with it. So I think it falls in that category. It's uh, it's kind of a, well, I actually ended up writing a novel in the form of a bunch of monologues. There's, uh, I think, 200, 300 monologues. And so some of the people who tell the story are ghosts. And some of them uh, are actually, some of the accounts are taken directly out of historical books. So it was kind of an unusual form. Uh, but it just tells the story of a night in 1862 when Lincoln, who had been president for about a year, uh, lost his son. His son died of typhoid. And the newspapers at the time reported that Lincoln had been so grief-stricken about this that he apparently had gone into the crypt where the boy's body was being held for several on several occasions, the account said. So I just I was kind of I heard that story 20 years ago and was just kind of so intrigued by it and, and moved by it. And um, so, yes, yeah, so I finally just took a shot at it. And it's basically just the story of that one night in the graveyard and, you know, hilarity ensues. Tell us about the concept of the bardo, first of all. This is, it's a Buddhist idea, and you practice Buddhism yourself. Basically, the, the bardo in the Tibetan tradition is, uh, it, it just means transitional space. So we're in a bardo right now, which is the bardo that occurs between birth and death. 
And then there's another one, and when people use the word bardo, they're usually referring to this one that starts at the moment of your death and kind of goes to whatever's next. So that would that would normally be to reincarnation in the in the Buddhist tradition. So I think originally I thought, oh, that'd be really cool to kind of uh, have this whole story take place in an accurate representation of that realm as depicted in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And then that idea went by the wayside pretty quickly just because I'm not a scholar of Buddhism. And also it seemed kind of a restrictive idea. If you're going to write a novel, you have to be you know allowed to play and make things up. So so the bardo that I talk about is sort of, it's kind of transactional. You know, it's, in other words, it's not really purgatory or limbo because the person who's in there can get out if only he sort of understands his, his situation. So a lot of the bardo beings or ghosts are kind of individuals who in life, you know, didn't quite get what they wanted or were a little uh, disappointed or heartbroken. And so they just, you know, they die. And then for whatever reason, they kind of lock up like somebody who's about to leave a hotel but can't get out of the lobby. And so this is kind of the world where um, the spirit of this young boy enters into this group of people. And they're also very much in denial of the fact that they're dead. Right. Some of them don't know. Some of them know a little bit, but, but kind of, you know, they don't want to admit it. it this is, I read a lot of ghost narratives, and one of the kind of funny and sad things you, that keeps coming up is that the first sort of the go-to for a lot of psychics or, or mediums is to ask a ghost what year it is. And the ghost will, of course, get it wrong. And then sometimes just by correcting the ghost, uh, by showing it a newspaper headline, the ghost will kind of go, oh, and then and go on to the next thing. They're just sort of trapped there by, I guess really trapped there just by the incredible disbelief that one has when you pass over. You know, you, you're, you're living, you're living, and suddenly something happens, and in an instant you're asked to kind of process the fact that this thing that is you is now invalid and done for. And I, as I suppose anybody with these, these ghosts balk a bit at that. And this spot also, there are appearances by, well, I'll say angels and demons, but in both cases, they're not in a form that we would recognize them as such. Right. They're kind of, I, I imagine those are just being sort of, uh, well, you know, kind of overflow energy. And part of the thing that I kept trying to pull myself to was the notion that whatever whatever happens after death, we, you know, we would be incapable of imagining it from this side of the, the abyss. So I kept, just for fun, I kept trying to shake it up a little bit and, and make sure that the reader wasn't on too solid a ground in, in this after death realm. So there were, there were these female beings that show up and to some people they present as angels and to some people they present as people from their lives. And we're not really sure if they're, uh, what their intention is. It's kind of like, they're almost like caretakers of this region trying to, trying to keep the flow of souls going. But yeah, that was for me the fun thing was to have a pretty good idea of what different cultures had said about afterlife and then say, well, let's take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And then just sort of allow the, uh, you know, the imaginative process to take over and make this truly strange, maybe even comic kind of afterlife. Tell me something else about the the real life Willie Lincoln, because he's, he's not that familiar over here in the UK. So who was he? Well, he was he was kind of the, the one of the quotes that I found said that he was the kind of child that we all imagine we'll have before we have children. So kind of a real sunny kid, very intelligent, um, happy, not not perfect, kind of a you know little hellraiser. But they said that he was the kid who was most like Lincoln in terms of his his quick intelligence and his very personable nature. He was a uh, he died at eleven, but he'd written a poem that he published at nine or ten, and just you know kind of um, a little bit of a golden boy actually. And then uh, I think I mean Lincoln and his wife took the loss very very hard because he was the one that I think they had the the highest hopes for. So just kind of you know. And then the other story was he he became sick at the same time as his brother Tad. They both had typhoid together, and um, the really heartrending thing. I think maybe one thing that made me want to write this book was the Lincolns had been playing this big reception at the White House, and uh, they'd been playing it for several weeks. The boys got sick, 
And so there's some question about whether they should go ahead and have the party or not. And the doctor advised that it would be okay. So they had the party, big blowout, you know, music coming up the stairwell while the boys were observed with fevers. And then that was actually the night when Willie took a turn for the worse. And then it was sort of a straight line to his death a couple of weeks later. So I think the parents and I think some of the press felt that this was, you know, kind of a, a mistake that they had this party. And there was a lot of a lot of guilt and a lot of regret. So it was kind of um, the death of Willie and the timing, you know, with respect to the war and with Lincoln's presence, he was a very, um, you know, like so many things in Lincoln's life, it almost seemed scripted. It was so dramatic. So when I started researching, there's all these, there are all these events around the death that just seemed very wonderful. And you could pretty much just put them in as they were and make it a more dramatic story. And as you mentioned, this is, it's towards the beginning of the Civil War. And as happens with, I guess, most wars, it's turning out to be longer and considerably more bloody than anybody had anticipated. Yeah, there was some sense that it would just be a quick, you know, almost a symbolic showing of arms and then the South would back down. And this is just about the moment when, you know, thousands of people were starting to die a day and in, in particularly messy ways that they hadn't anticipated. So it was starting to sink into to the country and to Lincoln that this was going to be a mess, you know. So do we think the death of his son had an effect on Lincoln's continued pursuance of the war? Well, that was kind of the, you know, the open question of the book, because historically we know that Willie died on such and such a date and that this battle preceded it. And, and, you know, we know what Lincoln did after. But whether or not, you know, to what extent it it affected the actual historical person, I think I just don't know. I mean, I know he was always um, one of the last things he said to his wife. I think the day of his assassination was that, you know, Willie's death had hit them so hard. And now they had to really try to move back together to, you know, to love one another and to be uh, attentive to one another who were, you know, so mutually wounded. But I think that was, in a way, that was the open question of the book was, we can look at the mileposts, but of course we can't really know the internal psychology. Uh, it seemed to me, though, as a you know, as a father and a husband, and that you know, when when your personal life intrudes in that way, you can't help but project outwards into the world. So there's a moment in the book where he's thinking about how incredibly unimaginable it is to lose this beloved little guy, and um, then he kind of flashes on the fact that this is happening all over the place, in a sense, because of him and his administration and thousands of of. Uh, Young men not much older than Willie are dying. So I, my takeaway from it, and again, I probably, I mean, this is the story I told, was that actually it would have the effect of tenderizing you a little bit and maybe making you more, you know, kind of recalibrating your inner ear to sorrow in other people. And um, then, of course, the problem is even with that retenderization, the question is, do you, in the name of tenderness, stop this war and save all these hundreds of thousands of soldiers' lives? Then in the process, you're, you're sort of cementing slavery, which if he had backed out of the war, would not only if it would have continued and it actually would have grown probably into Texas and Mexico. So it was one of those, I guess, those situations that uh, liberals like myself don't like to think about, which is that, you know, you can say I'm for peace and love and the world says, okay, uh, peace and love in this case means peace and love for one set of people and not another set of people. So you get to a very kind of crossroads moment, as Lincoln did, where it's not a question of whether they'll be suffering, but in what flavor and with what result. So he, he was in a real fix, you know. I'm Natalie Haynes, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned that the book is split between the narrative of characters that reside in the Bardo and real historical accounts, either histories or eyewitness statements of the time. I wanted to talk about the latter for a minute and in terms of like researching that where those things came from and I love the way you often use them in sort of contradictory ways so there's a bit at the beginning where there's various different accounts of whether there was a full moon or not and later on nobody could decide what colour Lincoln's eyes are you know somebody says they're you know they're blue grey somebody says they're green somebody says they're brown 
Tell us something about just finding that stuff. Well, I just, um, you know, I'm sort of a a hobbyist researcher. I I didn't start out, I I kind of just started writing the book and then started researching as I went. And uh, it's, you know, one of the things you notice in these historical accounts is that although a fact is a fact, a fact recounted gets a little wobbly. I think when Lincoln was killed, there was just a rush of people memorializing him and writing things down about him. And so there's quite a bit of uh, disagreement in the historical record. So then it was fun to kind of to put that in and also to mimic it in, in other ways. Uh, and to me, it, somehow that was, I don't, I wouldn't say it was intentional, but in the end, it seemed somehow to reinforce this idea of uh, an unknowable afterlife. Because not only is the afterlife unknowable, but even life is kind of unknowable. You know, it looks very solid and fixed, but the minute you get a few miles away from an incident and a few days away, suddenly the uh, that solidity is not so not so sure. So, you know, I mean, it's funny, you know, when you get to this point where you're talking about a book a lot, I think there's the danger that you reduce it a bit by making it seem as if you had it all figured out from the outset. But with this one, it was kind of just, a, you know, I'd been putting it off for 20 years and I just wanted to try it. And then the real experience was kind of four years of play, you know, just goofing around and trying to find non-lame ways to do things and kind of trying to spin the historical novel on its side a little bit and do something different with it. So these um, these historical things were sort of a, it was a solution that kind of arrived at speed, you know, just to the old problem of how do I get these facts in here without being pedantic, really. So I don't know, you know, it was a pretty amazing artistic experience that it's almost impossible to talk about it, but it was kind of a big intuitive run at this material. And every day just going in and trying to see, is there any way I can approach this stuff that hasn't been done before? And that also might sort of do more justice to the emotional power and uh, of the story. So this factual stuff was kind of a way of, you know, in a story that was had a lot of ghosts and a lot of supernatural, almost sci-fi elements, the titration in of the facts was kind of a way of almost patting the reader on the shoulder and saying, it's okay, this is this is all true, you know, or this is at least has a, has a spine of truth. I said there's a, a huge cast of characters in terms of the you know the people that are stuck in the bardo but the book has really three main narrators hans volman roger bevins the third and the reverend Everly thomas just tell us something about these three first of all well each of them are there as all these ghosts are because they something didn't sit right with them at the time of the death so so volman is a guy who was literally just i mean a, you know half a day away from consummating his marriage when he died so he's got that kind of on the, on the mind as you would uh, Bevins was a suicide who was kind of at the last minute full with regret. He, he wished he hadn't done it and it was too late to stop it. So he's sort of um, frozen in a state of kind of fresh awareness of how beautiful the world is. And he's so he's trying desperately to get back to life. And the Reverend, he's a little bit different. I won't give it away, but he's the one character in the book who kind of has a better understanding of where they are and why they're there. So the three of them, in my imagination, had been kind of, you know, bombing around this afterlife for maybe 10 years or so together. Friends, but also, you know, one of the, the things about this world is the longer you, it's very hard to stay there. It takes a real effort of will to stay undead, basically. And the longer you stay, the more you're kind of degraded. There's there's less of the actual you remaining. Uh, you become sort of, a, you know, a bit of a character of yourself. You keep repeating the same stories over and over again. And so it's kind of a sad, kind of a downhill run uh, once, once you get in that realm. So they're, they, the three of them have just been kind of friends, but in some ways it's kind of a sadder since you have to be quite selfish in this realm. Uh, it's a little bit like, you know, if you ever read about the old uh, hobos in the 30s, you know, they travel together, but since 
you know, everybody in the group is hungry and desperate. There was a kind of a, a code of the road where, you know, you, you, it was a friendship, but not a particularly amicable friendship. And these three, as I said, they're, they're the main narrators of the novel. They'll often be describing what each other are doing, but also addressing us directly with their own thoughts. And there are lots of other characters, and sometimes those characters address us directly. Sometimes their story is narrated by one of the three narrators, or, a, or sometimes a different narrator. And I wondered if this is what you were referring to in terms of putting together all of the conflicting historical accounts, in that often these personal narratives come in like a in a flood and from all different directions. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, I, you know, one of the things I think pushes a writer in some direction over the course of his or her career is that you're trying to find a form that seems truthful to you. You know, sometimes you start on a story and there's something about it that feels that in the name of making a narrative, you're falsifying somehow. So for me, now this is just my thing, but I, when I try to do a sort of worldly third-person narrator, I really can't do it because I'm not that person. I'm kind of poorly educated and a little bit kind of a strange person, actually. You know, And so when I try to make a kind of Gatsby-esque narrator, it just feels false to me. Likewise, if I try to do, so far anyway, if I try to do a big Gogolian omniscient narrator, or let's say a big Tolstoyan omniscient narrator, I can't do it. I just don't feel like I have that kind of mastery of the world that would allow me any kind of authority. So what I find myself gravitating toward in the last few books is some way of modeling a kind of extreme subjectivity that says the world is basically made up of millions and millions of consciousnesses that are entirely subjective and mostly incorrect, as are we. You know, you go out and I'm, I'm sitting up here in the attic of Shakespeare and Company looking out on Paris and I see all these people walking around and you know that if you could enter the mind of each one of them they're narrating the world from their you know particular limited point of view with themselves as the hero and relative to say my point of view they're probably wrong about a lot of things well they're thinking in french for example or you know they have a different politics or they have a completely per me skewed view of the world well the most truthful view of the world in my view is, is exactly that times however many people there are in the world so in this book, I think that I was trying to do in a sort of baby step way was to find a form that would let that viewpoint feel at home. So when you have a bunch of monologues, that's essentially what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to have a ghost tell me his story. I'm going to have another ghost tell me her story. There's no responsibility for those stories to link up or match up or uh, even reinforce one another. And then so on and so forth, letting in historical accounts. I invented some historical accounts. And in the end, I think I was trying to go for a cacophony, a kind of a beautiful cacophony or a polyphony of these different voices and the truth is actually the sum total of all of those those voices i would say or something like that you know how do you though despite the fact that you just said that you know the sum total is the truth is the sum total of all of those voices all of those voices are distinct some of them might only have a couple of lines in the entire book how do you how do you make distinct characters when often they have such a uh, such a fleeting appearance yeah, it's it's kind of, you know, I mean, this might get a little, I mean, this might be too technical an answer, but I, I had the idea sometimes that if you had, let's say you had 100, 100 friends in your kitchen, and the job was to arrange them in the living room so that each of them was distinct from the other. And let's say, now we're going to go crazy, but let's say that they all looked exactly the same. There was 100 versions of the same friend. What you might do is you put one in there and arrange him into a posture. Then you put another one and arrange her into a different posture, and so on and so forth. And as you start adding people to the room, you know, you're, you're constantly scanning the room to see, to make sure that you don't duplicate the posture. So by the end, it's a little difficult, but you could theoretically get 100 people in the room who are all have their hands and arms and legs and heads arranged in slightly different ways. Uh, someone passing by that room very quickly might say, oh my God, there's 100 different people in there. So it was similar in this book. You start to write a character, and if he sounded too much like another character, well, that was no good. 
good. And you had to go back to the drawing board and make some changes in the uh, the way he spoke or the way he thought. So it was almost a matter of just, I mean, it sounds silly, but the way to make, you know, hundreds of characters is to not duplicate the same character twice. And what I found out was that the reader, the reading mind is so acute that you will, as you're reading, if I make a very slight difference between character A and character B, even on the level of typography, you know, or, or, or punctuation, you'll actually register that as a, as a different person. And then the other thing that was helpful was just the idea that all these ghosts, uh, there's not a single happy one among them. So when you were saying, when you were looking for a character type, you would just say, well, where, what are all the different ways of being unhappy in, in the world? You know, what are the things that someone might regret enough to um, refuse to go on to heaven? So that's sort of an elaborate answer. The truth is it was by feeling, you know, every day I'd go in and just play around and you it's not that long of a book, so I kind of tend to read it from the beginning to wherever I was every day. So if I was duplicating a character, I would just become aware of it and fix it, basically. Well, this is where I wanted to go next, because bearing that image in mind and also thinking back on what you said about you know having fun playing with the historical narrative over a number of years... I wanted to talk about how this actually ends up on the page. You know, the characters, do you write a character that has a substantial part in its entirety and then split it up? Or does the thing come out as a sort of stream of consciousness almost? It came in, it, it progressed kind of by the hour of six o'clock. So I would start, you know, just page one, page 15, page. So it proceeded very linearly in that way. It wasn't the case that I wrote them first and fractured them. But you kind of remember, you know, this. I, I wrote this guy back on page 20. If he's making a reappearance, you want to go back and read through that again, maybe even retype some of it just to get yourself in, into the zone. And then, you know, you return to page whatever it is. So it was, it was much more a matter of trying to keep moving through the hours of that night and then kind of in a certain way, keeping an eye on where people were in the graveyard and what kind of and most especially what the um, well, as an, even as even in short fiction, what's the purpose of this beat? You know, so we're, we're here. Uh, Lincoln has just left the crypt. Okay, so then you have to kind of think, well, where is he going? Can I have him leave the graveyard? Should he stop somewhere? Meanwhile, what's happening here? So I guess I would kind of call it like a form of sequential housekeeping. You know, you're on page 40, and you don't want to go ahead to page 80. You want to stay in that zone, kind of refining, refining the fictive reality so it seems real to you. And then the next beat was sort of up here, you know. So again, very much, for me, my whole approach is always kind of intuitive uh, and also very iterative. Like, go back to the thing again and again and tighten it and loosen it and rewrite it and change it until everything that's behind me in the book feels to me as if it actually happened. And then, then I can, I can, I can go ahead. It's you know, it's very hard to describe actually. I mean, it's sort of, you know, you sort of reduce it by describing it, but in doing it, it actually feels not to, you know, to make it too grand, but it feels a lot like sports. You know, if you're, uh, you're playing sport, you're, you're not really, you're just, you're there, you know, you're feeling it. You've had hours of many hundreds of thousands of hours of practice. And then, in the moment of need, you you do what you think is right. Now, maybe after, you know, in the same way that after a game, you know, someone can analyze what they did, but you, you always have that slight feeling that it's a bit false, you know, and someone says, how did you score that goal? And they say, well, I just, you know, and they, whatever they say is kind of bullshit because actually they just did it, you know, they, they responded in the moment. We're pretty much out of time, but I just wanted to finish off asking you about the audiobook version of this book has the most incredible cast of anything ever, I think. How did it come about? It really does, yeah. Well, I just I was reacting against the idea of reading the thing because I, I could not imagine a worse hell than to try to read, you know, 300 pages of 19th century dialect in the Chicago accent that I have. So I asked the producer if we could, you know, possibly bring on a few actors just to kind of 
you know, maybe they could do some voices. And, and uh, her name is Kelly Gilday, and she just somehow, I think she just felt a, a real professional challenge in front of her. So she went out and got um, Nick Offerman and David Sedaris to agree to do it. And then from there, we just started getting all these wonderful actors agreeing. But in the process, Kelly did a spreadsheet, and we needed, it turns out, 166 people to get it all done. And so she just went on the hunt, and she got all these great actors and Oscar winners, and then we still only had about that was only about 40 people. So then she went to the kind of audiobook A-list, all these people who were professional audiobook readers and got a bunch of great people there. And we still needed about 60 or 70. And so then we got my mother and my father and my wife and my kids and uh, people from Random House. And uh, so in the end, we managed to cover every single monologue with a different speaker. So there's 166 people and nobody nobody doubles the role or anything. So it's kind of, a, kind of a crazy experience. And included yourself, we should add. And I was fighting about that, but Kelly thought it would be good for to have me be this guy, the Reverend, who's probably the closest thing to a a narrator that's in the book. Yeah, it was a, it's a really uh, it's a very different experience from reading the book, I think, but it's it's pretty uh, pretty unprecedented. I've been talking to George Saunders. We've been talking about his debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. George, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Catherine Hughes is the author of award-winning biographies of Mrs Beaton and George Eliot, both of which were filmed for the BBC. For the past 15 years, she has been a literary critic and a columnist for The Guardian, 
Educated at Oxford University and with a PhD in Victorian Studies, she is currently Professor of Life Writing at the University of East Anglia and Fellow of both the Royal Society of Literature and the Royal Historical Society. And Catherine's latest book is Victorians Undone, Tales of Flesh in the Age of Decorum. Catherine, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. So this book has a... It has a thesis, it has an idea. Tell us what the idea behind the book is. Well, it really grew out of my dissatisfaction with writing biography about Victorians, and I've done that for the last 15, 20 years, and I've tried as hard as I can to get kind of close to the experience of famous people like George Eliot or or, uh, Mrs Beeson. But I still felt there was something missing. There was something, you you know, that sort of feeling you have when you wake up in the morning yourself and you think, hmm, have I got a tickle in my throat? Or um, is there something funny about my right foot? Or can I get away with not washing my hair today? All those little sort of physical kind of problems that we immediately register and stay with us throughout the mm-hmm. day. Some of those are never there in biographies. You know, the, the subjects of biographies are curiously disembodied. They have very clever thoughts. Um, they travel around the world. Um, they do all sorts of extraordinary things. They have great love affairs, great scandals, all kinds of sexual deviance. But somehow the body isn't there. And mm-hmm. I just thought, I'm going to try and see if I can do something like that. Is there a reason why the body has been left behind in biography? Because it wasn't always the case. And you talk about eminent Victorians, Lytton Strachey's book, which actually uses the body to mock its subjects. So I wonder if perhaps that's why people have subsequently been reluctant to talk about the body so much. I think it's two things. I th- first of all, I think you're absolutely right. It was that idea that actually if you touch upon the body as straight she did almost 100 years ago, it must be to mock. It must be to do a sort of, oh, you know, he's got a big nose or, you know, she's got funny feet. And, and there's a sort of, sort of a, quite rightly, a kind of attack and a desire not to go down the way, what I sort of call the carry-on kind of view of biography. You know, we're not there just to mock funny people in the olden days. So I think that's right. I think it's a sort of question of decorum and taste. I also think it's very simply the fact that these, these details are very, very hard to find. Now, you know, when Strachey did it, as he himself would say, you know, he made quite a lot of it up. So, for instance, famously, he said that Thomas Arnold, you know, the, the headmaster from Tom Brown's school days, um, had legs that were too short for his body. And when somebody pointed out to him, um, I, don't, I don't think that's true, there's no proof, is there? Strachey said, well, if they weren't, they should have been. Well, you know, as, a, as a professional historian and biographer, I can't, I can't get away with that kind of sloppiness. I have to find real facts. And those facts are really, really hard to find. I mean, I mean, by and large, people write, of course, about when they're facing really, really serious illness. People will talk in their diaries and their letters. They'll write about the concerns and worries. But we tend not to write about, you know, I don't know, um, the fact that I think I've got an ingrowing toenail or I think my right hand is a bit sort of feeling a bit funny. Do you think it means anything? Those precise details... People don't write down. And certainly, I mean, obviously, only generally for people at the upper end of the social spectrum, there would start to be photographs and things as well. So there's those sort of records of what people actually physically look like. True. From about sort of 1855, you're absolutely right, you get professional photography. And then later, you know, by the 1860s and 70s, sort of what we call high street photography. Mm. I mean, the problem with that, as you know, you probably know, is that in the early days of photography, one had to sit very, very still so as not to smudge the... um, smudge the image. As a result, everybody looks very, very strange. I mean, nobody looks like themselves. Everybody's got this very, very kind of rigid posture and their sort of faces are grimaced and you don't get any sense of... I mean, you know, if, you, if you're waiting for a friend and they're walking down the street towards you, and you often know them not so much by their, their sort of features 
initially, but sort of by the way they walk, because actually just unconsciously you know the way they walk. Mm-hmm. You know something about the way their shoulders bob up and down or the way that they sort of appear to kind of move from side to side. Well, those kind of details just don't come out in photography. And so I think it's... I mean, my worry always was, you know, that if George Eliot or Mrs Beaton were to walk into this room now, I'm not sure I'd recognise them, even though I have spent years looking at images of them. I mean, it might be a giveaway, because obviously they'd be wearing Victorian clothes, but apart from that, I'm not sure I'd be confident enough to go up and go, you're George Eliot, aren't you? Because I'm not sure that I would recognise them. You've given a few examples of, of people that are you know, famous characters from history that we might not recognise. Charlotte Bronte, there's just been, just very recently, a fantastic BBC production about the Brontes, and they all had nice, genteel Yorkshire accents. Apparently this is not the case. No, absolutely. I loved that television production by Sally Wainwright. Mm. It was wonderful. Wonderfully done. But we know from uh, um, something that one of her schoolmates said, Mary, when she first, when Charlotte Bronte first goes to Roe Head, so that's the school after the sort of horrible school for vicar's daughters, the sort of genteel school. All the school friends, all the sort of girls come out to meet her and they, and they notice that she has these very, very thick bottle specs uh, and that she has an Irish accent. Now, of course, that's because her father, Reverend Patrick Bronte, was from the northern part of Ireland. The family lived quite a sequestered life and obviously they picked up that brogue. But you never get a sense of that, do you, in any kind of adaptation? As you say, they're, they're all speaking a sort of slightly genteel sort of Harrogate Yorkshire. And of course, we have this impression with Victorian times that attitudes to sex and the body obviously change over the period. Indeed, the, the book is subtitled Tales of Flesh in the Age of Decorum. But it wasn't like that shortly before. So Georgian times and the Regency times, which came just before, were much looser. And as you mentioned in the book, these were the same people. It's not like everybody left and a new cast of characters come in. The same people lived through all three periods. So... What changed? You're, you're absolutely right. I, I'm always kind of frustrated when I read history books and it, and it talks about, quite reasonably, you know, the, the, as if the Georgians were these kind of loose, unbuttoned kind of, you know, um, people living for pleasure. And as you say, then they suddenly sort of leave the stage and then their buttoned-up sort of Victorian offspring come on. And, of course, it's the same people. You know, we all of us now live for a long time and so we all live through long, long periods of time. We are both, you know, 60s hippies and um, 80s career girls and, you know, 90s new world people. And so, and so we go on. What changes, I think, is, I mean, I, I was particularly interested in this fact that from the end of the 18th century, people are pouring into the cities at an absolutely unprecedented rate. London, Bristol, Liverpool, Manchester, all these places are becoming these huge centres of population. And suddenly, people would have been very, very aware of other people's bodies in a way that just wasn't wasn't the case before. If you went to the theatre, if you went on a bus, if you simply walked down the street, if you went to a lodging house, you would suddenly find yourself absolutely kind of somebody's elbow in your face or your nose in their armpit, as not, not to be sort of too gross about it. Suddenly, um, there's a sense of other people's bodies and that must have given you a kind of very, a, a much clearer sense of what the body was about. The book is is made up of, in the main, of five essays about different people, different parts of the body. And we'll we'll look at some of those stories as we go through the interview. But to begin with, and to get us into the first one, Victoria herself, she has, as we would describe now, a body image problem, doesn't she? 
Yes, I mean, I, I was very, very struck by reading the diaries from the early uh, period, which are all available online, anybody can look at them, is that she is a young girl going through the sorts of things that young girls go through, so very anxious um, about putting on weight, uh, because she's only five foot, really thrilled when she gets ill and it means that she loses weight, very, very worried about the fact that she's got rather a large bust, and actually the fashion is really for kind of quite, if you think about very early Victorian period, as it were, before Victorian England became Victorian, the fashion is is quite different. It's um, much looser with the Georgian period, you know, a high bust giving way to uh, kind of quite floaty kind of skirts. Victoria just doesn't look good in that, in that look. It doesn't work if you have a well-developed bust, if you're not very tall. So she has all those kinds of anxieties. Also, she... She gets very depressed in the second year of her reign. This is before she's got married to Prince Albert. As well, she might. The, the girl is in an appalling sort of situation. Uh, being queen at the age of 19, not getting on with her mother. There's a war in Afghanistan. Europe is falling apart. I mean, these are extraordinary burdens for, for a young girl. But she does, I think, what any of us might do when we're under pressure. She starts drinking slightly too much at dinner. Um, that, of course, makes her put on weight. And so everybody around her is sort of suggesting that she might like to kind of slow down a bit on the on the drink at supper. Um, she starts gobbling her food, and some of the ladies in waiting kind of can't help noticing that you know, when she pulls her lip back to eat, she's got these little rodent teeth, you know, so that actually the overall effect is of somebody literally kind of going at their dinner like nobody's business, and it's just not what you expect of a queen. Also, as she gets more more depressed in that second year, she starts developing what we might call psychosomatic symptoms now. She gets a rash over her hands. She develops styes on her eyes. I mean, all these things will be terribly, terribly kind of familiar to anybody who's gone through a bit of a slump. But what's so interesting is to see that, uh, as it were, embodied in this very ordinary little kind of dumpling of a girl who's supposed to embody sort of regalness and absolute beauty and and what do you do i mean it's a sort of body dysmorphia and it must have been quite dreadful for her she doesn't look like a queen i mean that's really the problem and one of the people that comes into that her early court um is someone who very much is able to wear those thin dresses of, of the period lady flora hastings tell us who she is well lady flora hastings was woman who uh, Victoria couldn't stand. Um, it's a sort of classic uh, kind of situation of, of a sort of blended family. Victoria's father had died when she was a baby so she didn't know him and so she and her mother had been sort of constructing these what we would call blended families now with people coming in and out, father figures coming in leaving and so forth. Lady Flora Hastings is imported into this household in Kensington Palace before Victoria's become queen to be her companion, to be her best friend. Well, I mean, no no girl really wants their mother choosing their best friends, but in effect, that's what happens. So the Duchess of Kent, Victoria's mother, says that Lady Flora Hastings is going to be your new best friend. And naturally, Victoria is absolutely furious. Flora Hastings is almost 10 years older than Victoria. She is, in effect, uh, the Duchess of Kent's eyes and ears. She is um, Victoria's mother's spy, as far as Victoria is concerned. And Victoria literally gives her the cold shoulder, will have nothing to do with her. I think Victoria, uh, I think Lady Flora probably had an unfortunate personality. I think she was a bit brusque. I think she probably was a bit nosy. But I think, you know, as far as Victoria was concerned, one of her great, kind of her greatest sin was that she was slim, rather attractive, and seemed to be very, very close to a man that Victoria couldn't bear, Sir John Conroy, who uh, ran the household. 
There's already rumours that Conroy and Flora are lovers, isn't there? Hmm. Well, there's been, there's been... I mean, this is where the story gets so crazy, which suggests this is a family that could have done with a bit of family therapy because there are already rumours, uh, before Flora even appears, that the Duchess of Kent, that's Victoria's mother, is a lover of Sir John Conroy. So Victoria has grown up with the idea that this man she can't bear is actually her mother's lover. Along comes Lady Flora... And Victoria, in her sort of slightly heightened, slightly, I have to say, sort of hysterical view of the world at this point, starts thinking that actually Flora and Sir John might be lovers as well. I mean, she's a she's a highly sexual creature, Victoria. I think I think that is absolutely clear. And you know, she's boy crazy at this point. I mean, no no visiting prince is kind of slightly safe from her. And I think you know her, her imagination runs riot. So suddenly she's seeing kind of lovers everywhere. I'm Emily Mayhew, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. And so let's talk about what happens with Flora then, because suddenly her appearance changes. Mm. Well, that's right. What people often don't understand, and it never comes out in, in TV dramas around Victoria's Court, is that ladies-in-waiting weren't there the whole time. They came into waiting for perhaps a period of four months, and then they would they would go away for... Um, the rest of the year back to their their families who were always you know great landed families um, and then they come back to court so in other words there's a lot of come and go and what happens is that Lady Flora has been away from the court for um, a rather suspicious sort of five months she comes back last time anybody saw her she was looking slim and, and uh, she's very svelte she comes back at the beginning of uh, 1839 and she seems to have put on weight. Specifically, she seems to have grown quite a large stomach. I mean, it would have been apparent because she was a slender woman. And it doesn't take um, the court very long, and it certainly doesn't take Victoria very long, to start suggesting that Lady Flora, who, of course, is unmarried, might be pregnant. And this, obviously, would be a a huge scandal if this was the case. It wouldn't, it wouldn't. And this is the really interesting thing. Lord Melbourne, a man of the Regency, is completely relaxed about uh, women getting pregnant. He, he he thinks, yes, she probably is pregnant, doesn't matter. Um, I just, I wish she'd just go quietly and deal with it, have the baby in the country and then come back. So in other words, it's both a scandal and not a scandal. But for Lady Flora, who comes from a very devout family background... It was the most appalling thing to be accused of. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's that's something I found very odd about when I was researching the court, is that at one level there's a kind of worldly Georgian regency quality to it. Everybody's at it. We all know this. And then you also have you can have people like Lady Flora Hastings who are absolutely appalled to think that anybody would think that of them. I mean, it's absolutely appalling. So these, these rumours go backwards and forwards and and then it it basically becomes apparent that flora is going to have to prove in some way that she is she is not pregnant and this appalling examination takes place tell us about that well this is this is new so i mean the the story of lady flora hastings has been known ever since ever it gets it's cut and pasted into biographies of victoria you know, all the, all the time, nothing new about that. What I was able to locate and discover was, first of all, letters that the Hastings family wrote as this was going on and letters that Flora wrote about what was going on. And also I came upon notes that the doctor uh, who performed the examination wrote about how to go about examining a pregnant woman. Now, I don't have the case notes for Flora, but I do have a very full set of um, a description that uh, Sir Charles Clark wrote about how to 
examine a pregnant woman and, to, and not just to, to, to see whether the baby's okay but also to see whether she's a virgin or not and also what's come to light is a, a description written by Lady Flora's maid of what went on during a, a really horrible sort of 45 hour, a 45 minute um, period when um, Lady Flora was examined by two doctors. So this is I mean it's a catch-22 situation because the doctors are going to prove that she's not pregnant because she's not pregnant but at the same time, the very act of examining her will ruin her reputation anyway. Exactly. I, I mean, I mean, the reason why examinations were, especially for women, unmarried women, were so blushing and shameful was that it was, uh, it, it was the sort of thing that might happen to a prostitute, perhaps. You know, a suggestion that if she's harboring some um, in the lock hospitals, which is where prostitutes were locked up. If they were suffering from a sexually transmitted disease, they were locked up, examined, treated before they were let back out. So to examine um, a single woman like in that way, and, and you know, we're talking about what we call an internal examination now, was deeply, deeply shaming, and in in a very sort of strange way, turned her into the into the the loose woman that she was accused of being. I mean, at the most kind of physical level, obviously. The act of of the examination would have uh, penetrated her hymen, so in fact she would no longer be intact. So you know, at that most basic level, she's no longer a virgin. But at the much more kind of important kind of metaphorical level, she has had things done to her that no pure woman should have done to her. She becomes, as it were, metaphorically, you know, the, the fallen woman that she was accused of being. I said that she wasn't pregnant, and shortly after this she dies she dies in buckingham palace much to victoria's you know disagreement because you know there was supposed to be a ball that night and it has to be cancelled do we actually know now what was wrong with her well interestingly the family are determined that there will be what we call a post-mortem and, and flora had insisted in her life in her dying days i want a post-mortem when i die because i want the world to know that i wasn't pregnant because the anxiety is if there isn't a post-mortem the rumor will get out that she died perhaps in childbirth or of an, a botched abortion or something like that so the hastings family insist on a panel of six doctors attending the the post-mortem some of their doctors some of the doctors belonging to the court so there can be no doubt um and the doctors produce a a long description of what's the matter with her which is published in the newspapers i mean this is extraordinary the degree of public interest in this you can imagine it would be i mean we're often very interested in celebrity deaths aren't we george michael amy winehouse and and we get the coroner might release a few details but we don't get the whole thing quite rightly as as a matter of taste and decency here the whole thing is put before the nation in, uh, in in the press, which is extraordinary. The symptoms they describe, I'm told by Dr. Friends, sound like it's stomach cancer, probably. There may well have been something else. Somebody suggested to me Crohn's disease, a sort of underlying, that wouldn't have killed her, but it might be an underlying ongoing state of affairs. The sort of the ligatures that are binding up her inside, that are blocking her gut, in effect, and that's why it swells. It may have been liver cancer. It's very, very hard to read... Uh, post-mortem, which are 150 years old, because their vocabulary is not our vocabulary. And just before we, we move on from this story, now, she was very young. This was all happening before Albert comes along. But, you know, Victoria is not covering herself in glory particularly here. But in terms of at the time, what did this scandal do for her, you know, public image is probably the wrong word. It's a modern way of looking at it. But what did people think? Well, the extraordinary thing is that everybody knew about it. Anybody that read a newspaper knew about it. 
you know, the, it, it, we think today of uh, they, they would have, had, you know, the Royal Family might have hired a PR to do some crisis management. Well, although they tried desperately, they didn't manage it. So everybody knows there are prayers said for Flora Hastings in churches on Sundays. I mean, it's that much of a kind of public matter. There are horrible, horrible kind of uh, pieces in the press about Victoria telling her that she should fall onto her knees and beg forgiveness of Lady Flora. Um, the suggestions that Baris Lays and her governors um, should slink off back to Germany. I mean, it's absolutely appalling. Um, one time she go, Victoria goes out in her um, coach after, shortly after Flora's died and somebody shouts out from the crowd, who's belly up now? I mean, that's, you know, again, I, mean, I can only sort of say if somebody yelled that at a member of our royal family now, it would be so offensive. Uh, so this idea that, uh, that, that sort of the level of sort of public discourse was much more high-toned then than it is now, absolutely not. It feels like a sort of awful sort of knockabout farce, but with a very, very nasty undertow. It did hurry. I mean, there was a real feeling she might be forced to abdicate and that the next line to the throne who was her uncle, an even, a very, very unsavoury man who was King of Hanover, would have to come and reign in her stead. I mean, there was a suggestion, I think there was a worry, is this is what happens when you have a woman on the throne. I mean, it's, it's been 150 years since you had a, a woman on the throne, that was Queen Mary, but she had her husband, King William, with her. This is what happens when you have a woman on the throne and an unmarried woman on the throne. I mean, literally, the polity falls apart. <laughs> You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Catherine Hughes and we're talking about her book, Victorians Undone, Tales of the Flesh in the Age of Decorum. And Catherine, we're going to move on to another famous figure of the period now, Charles Darwin. Whenever we think of Charles Darwin now, from this age, we'll picture him with a long white beard. But actually he only had that beard, the clue might be given in the fact that it was white, towards the end of his life. In the book, you talk about, well, the first public appearance of this beard, which is at a soiree at the Royal Society in 1866, what happens? Well, Darwin hasn't been in public life for a few years because he's been suffering from ill health. So he's been down in his country estate in Kent. He decides to come up for this really swish do uh, at the Royal Academy, Burlington House, where the Royal Academy is now. And what because he's going to be introduced to the Prince of Wales. So it's a really, really important occasion. He turns up. And what's mortifying, because he's a very shy man, is that he goes into the room and it's full of scientists and people he's known for a long time and nobody recognises him. People literally blank him. He has to go up to people, touch them on the shoulder and kind of go, um, it's, it's me, it's Charles Darwin, which is... Can you imagine how awful that would be? And it was simply because the last time anyone had seen him, he hadn't had a beard. He'd had those big mutton-shot whiskers that uh, men used to have through the 1850s, but he had now grown the beard that we all associate with him. And obviously it had changed him completely. Now, when we see portraits or even some photographs of eminent figures from the beginning of the Victorian period or, you know, the mid-Victorian period, they're all clean-shaven. The idea of a beard was associated with working-class people from the East End or, you know, sailors or whatever. Then suddenly they all look like 
you know, they're from the modern East End. Everybody suddenly got, everybody looks like they're from Hackney all of a sudden. Why did beards become fashionable? You know, you're absolutely right. Prior to, let's say, 1852, the beard was um, a sign that a man was up to no good. As you say, he was a ruffian, he was a chartist, he was a foreigner, you know, not the sort of thing you'd, you'd want to be associated with. Indeed, in the houses of, uh, House of Commons, there was only one man who had a beard and he had to carry a sick cane with him to sort of whack small boys in the street who might name-call after him. I mean, what changes is, as always, it's a variety of things. First of all, Britain comes out of the 1840s. The 1840s have been very, very difficult, the hungry 40s, chartism has, uh, you know, its demands for annual parliament and um, working class reform that seems to have been vanquished we have the great exhibition 1851 which suggests the economy is on the uprise and Britain is feeling quite good about itself so suddenly you know when you feel good when the nation feels quite prosperous when it feels like your, your livelihood is not about to be taken away you can start experimenting a bit and this is partly what happens there's a sense in which you know we don't have to mark ourselves out as deeply respectable then what you also have is that famously the Crimean War comes along a couple of years later and that's the first war that's photographed photographs come back from the front and what it shows is our soldiers growing beards out there because it's practical it's difficult to shave you know when you're in the army it's also warm a beard is warm so suddenly the idea of being a hero is is combined with having a beard so suddenly it's no longer you know the sign of a scoundrel but the sign of somebody that you would quite like to emulate and what happens rather sadly is that some people who have, are never going to go out to the Crimea, who are never going to go any further than Folkestone, start growing beards because it's a sort of manly, roughy-tufty kind of thing to do. It just looks like you are leading a life of kind of bravery and adventure, even if actually you know, you're, you're a grocer or you, you run a factory. And you talk about how there's there's also, particularly within the middle classes, almost like a shift in how masculinity is perceived. Yeah, I mean, what, what happens is, what anthropologists would say is that um, as mid-Victorian prosperity gets underway, men are going out to work, as they always have done, but they're, they're going out to work in offices. Uh, now, whether that's you're a barrister, you're a grocer, you're a clerk, the fact is you, you're, you're working somewhere where there's a roof and some heating. You know, it's you're not doing something physical. And that, again, can make you feel slightly not a proper man. So there's this this sense in which you're going to grow a beard to show that, yes, you may actually be sort of doing something very, very boring, like totting up figures or selling cheese or, you know, doing something very, very mild. But actually, you're a real man. And that's when we start to see those kind of extraordinary beards, which are just absolutely amazing. Then what you get, of course, is uh, in the public press, an awful lot of very bad science comes along to explain why it's it's absolutely essential that, that a man should grow a beard. Now, the reasons why a man might... might I, I can't help noticing you don't have one, but let me tell you, if you had a beard, it would mean that you, you wouldn't have toothache. It would provide a nice um, sort of mask for germs. It would stop germs getting... So you wouldn't get any flu... Um, you could use it as a handy scarf in winter or a sun shield in the summer. And it would uh, mean, and this was very, very crucial in the great sort of capitalist fight in life, that you could hide any signs of weakness or emotion behind your beard. So we get this kind of popular outpouring of, of what I call bad science, saying it's only natural, a man, a man must have a beard because it's, it does these great things. Of course, the, the obvious question is, if it's so good at stopping toothache, colds, uh, and protecting you from the sun, why don't women and children have them? <laughs> That's how, you know, that would be obvious, then. We'd, we'd all have them. So the science doesn't really stand up. Well, I have had a beard in the past, and, um, and I can vouch that at least it does keep you warm in the winter, but none of the other things. 
Darwin himself, now he's not a follower of fashion. He's not having a beard because it's the thing to do. Why does Darwin grow a beard? Well, Darwin grows a beard for a reason, actually, that I find I found that many other men did, but they never really talked about it, which was that since he'd been a young man, he'd been very badly afflicted by eczema. Um, red flaky skin uh, really really severe that uh, had made him feel so self-conscious as a young man he would often leave naturalists sort of uh, you know he'd go with friends to hunt beetles say on the north Wales coast but would leave halfway through because he was just so embarrassed about how he looked It, it didn't just inflame his skin but it sort of made his lips swell up as well he thought that rather sadly he thought he looked hideous that's the word he used so it made it made great sense really to grow a beard. I mean, for one thing, you're not constantly roughing up the skin every day with with shaving, so it, it soothes it. Um, but also, it covered it up. Uh, and what I discovered once I started sort of attending properly to other case histories is that men often grew beards for all the sorts of reasons that make complete sense. You know, if you've got smallpox scars, for instance, and many people did, of course, sensible to grow a beard. Dickens, I think, grew a beard because he had a, a weak chin that he was slightly self-conscious about. Well, again, you know, I've got a weak chin. If I could grow a beard, I'd have one. You know, I, I can see why that would work. Longfellow, the uh, American poet who spent a lot of time in Britain, he got horrible facial scars from trying to rescue his wife from a burning building. So all these very, very practical reasons why men grew beards. The interesting thing is they usually didn't fess up to it. That's the point. Uh, they usually said, as as Darwin did, Darwin said uh, that my my wife made me do it. We mentioned about how how difficult it is to, to you know to gain information from Flora's autopsy and at this distance to know for real how she actually died. Now with Darwin, as you said, he suffered from numerous ailments all his life, but actually it turns out his beard might help us to finally find out what it was that finished him off. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, he suffered from terrible, terrible health. And in a way, of course, it was a strategy that worked very well for him. A bit like Elizabeth Barrett in her couch meant that she could keep the world at bay and write poetry. Well, Darwin, of course, could keep the world at bay by saying, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm I'm not well enough to, to live the life of a public man. I can stay at home in Kent and do my do my research. He suffered, as you, as you rightly said, from a whole host of symptoms, um, lots of gut problems, uh, fainting fits, vomiting, um, you mentioned his wind, particularly in the book. Terrible wind, you know, and there's been all sorts of uh, theories as to what this could be. So the sort of things people talk about, again, Crohn's disease again, possibly. Something called Chagas disease, which is something you pick up from beetles that he might have, uh, that he did indeed have interaction with when he was on the beagle. Uh, somebody rather modernly suggested lactose intolerance. It could have been hypochondria. You know, we really don't know. The very thrilling thing is that some of Darwin's beard's hairs have been passed down through the family. So um, they're now in the possession of one of his great-grandsons. And um, very interestingly, over the last couple of years, a couple of those beard hairs have been subject to analysis and some of Darwin's genome has been unravelled. Now, a lot of work remains to be done. It has to be clear, you know, we aren't suddenly on the on the cusp of saying what ails him. But it does look as though in the next few years that information will become available, which is just so exciting. I mean, this, this notion that a beard, which is something kind of quite metaphorical, it, you know, it's something Darwin grows because he thinks he's hideous, might actually end up having this very, very material kind of impact on understanding what was wrong with him. I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Now, someone else who liked a beard were the uh, Pre-Raphaelites. And um, there's a portrait by Rossetti, the kiss mouth of a woman. Um, Tell us who this woman is. 
She's called Fanny Cornforth, or, or that's her professional name. That's the name by which she was known as, a, as an artist's model. Yes, Boccabacciata, The Kissed Mouth. It's the most beautiful portrait done in 1859. And art historians identify that painting as sort of marking a real turn in Rossetti's art. So, you know, if you think up until then, uh, the age of sort of 33 or so, he had been producing that medieval style that we so associate with, with the pre-Raphaelites and with his partner that we most associate with him, uh, Lizzie Siddle. So there's very, very wraith-like, very thin, slender girls uh, looking like they could do with a good meal. Um, suddenly, he paints this woman, Fanny Cornforth, in 1859. She's completely different, completely voluptuous. It's not a medieval look. It's much more high renaissance. It's, it's very luscious, very sensual, very, very sexy. And that's, as I say, what art historians kind of pinpoint as a, as a big shift in his work. But also what I was very interested in is that Fanny Cornforth turns out to be a woman who, with whom Rossetti was partnered for 25 years of his life. She is the woman with whom he spent far, far more time than anybody else. I mean, the two women we tend to associate are Lizzie Siddle, whom he married briefly, and Jane Morris, who, who models for all those much later pictures, the sort of dark lady pictures. But here's this woman, Fanny Cornforth, who actually is there in the background throughout his life and models for the kind of key paintings. And yet she's not as well known as those other women you mentioned. So why? What are the reasons? Well, the reasons, I think, are... No, she's not known at all. I mean, until about 1940, I don't think she was named in any Rossetti biographies, and there have been many, many Rossetti biographies. The reason she wasn't named was because Rossetti's family and friends, who were very careful about guarding his posthumous image. She died young, died in his early 50s. Couldn't stand Fanny Cornforth. She was a loud, vulgar woman. They like to put it about that she was a prostitute. That's a bit debatable. It depends what you think a prostitute is exactly. And certainly she was a woman who slept with Rossetti and needed to be supported by him financially in return. Now, whether that is actually... I mean, I was very interested in the fact that prostitution is such a sort of kind of specific term for a whole range of kind of sexual relationships that a woman might have with a more powerful man. But as far as, you know, posterity was concerned, she was she was a vulgar prostitute who was a, a millstone around Rossetti's neck and they really wanted to write her out of the story. And, well, we know that the Victorians had a, you know, a huge amount of hypocrisy around prostitution and I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And, you know, again, it brings up to mind Flora Hastings again and this idea is, you know, you, you mentioned this examination that she has and there is a, there's an act enacted which which basically forces prostitutes to be examined with a you know a, a speculum in the way that flora had you know and yet half of the population of london was in some way engaged in in prostitution you're absolutely right i was very very keen to try and complicate our, de- our ideas about what what prostitution is i mean get, we have these kind of very strange ideas that there's somebody called a prostitute she probably hangs around the haymarket you know with um lipstick and uh and a revealing frock and sort of, you know, it says, hello, ducky, on, on corners and, and kind of lures men in. Of course, it's not like that at all. A lot of, I mean, a lot of working-class women and lower-middle-class women would have found themselves at some point reliant on a man to whom they weren't married for financial support. And then these relationships are often quite transient. Uh, you, you, might t- you might sort of have a lover because, and he might pay you, because you can't make a, a living from doing what you're doing. Perhaps, you know, you're semestress or you're making hats. So you may well have a, a lover or several, and they're paying you a bit of money 
small amounts of money that helps you until perhaps you know you meet somebody and you marry and you put prostitution behind you or perhaps you marry one of those men or perhaps you simply set up house with him but everybody thinks you're married uh, in other words there's just such a huge variety of reasons why somebody might enter those kind of relationships a woman who is widowed or abandoned perhaps her husband is in the, the merchant navy goes off to sea She's going to need to find various sources of income. And at some point in her life, she may well find herself financially dependent on a man and she may well offer some sort of sexual relationship in return. But to call it prostitution actually sort of, sort of glamorises it. I, I mean, I think it's just a much more kind of ordinary, everyday activity. And indeed, as you, as you said, so Fanny's in a relationship with Rossetti on and off for about 25 years. Um, you know, he's paying her rent. And then he marries Elizabeth Siddle. And where does that leave Fanny? Well, indeed. So a few months after he painted uh, Fanny in um, The Kissed Mouth, she is appalled to discover that he has gone and married Lizzie Siddle. And appalled because she didn't even know this woman existed. I mean, I think that's the extraordinary thing. She thinks she's met a nice young artist. They seem to be getting on. He's painted some gorgeous pictures of her. And my goodness, the next thing she hears, he's in Paris. He's on honeymoon with this woman. And she's up. Absolutely, kind of. I mean, that is that is the end of her life because what does a working class woman do when their provider, as it were, simply goes away? What she does very sensibly is that she finds somebody to marry herself. She's got another lover on the side, very sensibly. You always want a plan B, and she marries him. Uh, he's called Timothy Hughes, but actually his mother's name, married name is Cornforth. She likes that name so much, and it is a very pretty name that she takes that name. And it's a sort of tit-for-tat, really, but it's also a very pragmatic move. You know, um, what am I going to do? I have got to find a man. And she does. Where does she end up? Well, what happens is that, I mean, famously, Lizzie Siddle dies, very sadly, about two years into the marriage, and within weeks, Fanny is back and living with Rossetti. And from then on, they're really together for the rest of Rossetti's life, on and off. I mean, Rossetti conducts parallel relationships. He's a man that's very, very happy in sort of triangular relationships, perhaps two men and one woman. I don't mean literally sleeping in bed together, but I mean just the emotional complexity. He likes always to be in a sort of state of flux. And that actually, Fanny finds herself having to, as it were, kind of work around that to triangulate her relationships as well. So she's mainly with Rossetti, but she always has somebody kind of lined up in the wings, which is an entirely sensible thing to do. I want to move on to the, the last story in the book for the uh, the last part of the show. And this is the story of the, well, familiar sounding to modern ears, I think, Sweet Fanny Adams, which has become a phrase now. But this is basically the story of an incredibly grotesque murder of an eight-year-old girl in 1867. Tell us briefly what happens... Well, it's an, extra I mean, it's an extraordinarily sad story. 1867, the, the small market town of Alton in Hampshire. One Saturday afternoon, high summer, end of August, little Fanny Adams, eight-year-old girl, goes with her slightly younger sister and her friend out to play in something called the Flood Meadow. It's a field, it's, it's really, I mean, it's about 100 yards from her cottage home. It's where all the children of the town go to play, splash around, and the, the, the river is very shallow at that point. Uh, what happens is that they're accosted by a respectable-looking young man who does that classic thing of offering the money if they will run some races. And, of course, they're charmed. I mean, these are children from poor but respectable backgrounds. The offer of hapenies, lovely. That means sweets, absolutely, of course. So they do some running up and down. The young man asks Fanny to come up into a field with him, sends the other two children away to go and buy sweets. And that's the last time Fanny's ever seen. Very, very sadly, nobody knows 
in, in a sense what happens next. By the evening, Fanny's mother is beginning to get worried about where she is. Men from that part of the town go out for a search party. It's beginning to get dusk. They go into the uh, hop field where Fanny was last seen with the stranger. And what they come across is truly appalling. They come across Fanny's head neatly propped up on a couple of hop poles. And as the search kind of unfurls, they find more and more bits of her. She's been sort of scattered over the field. So there's an arm here, there's a leg there. The torso has been slit. All the entrails have brought out. I mean, it's an absolutely horrific scene. And, well, the guy that's done this, he's... I mean, caught immediately. It's obvious who's murdered her. There's a trial. He's eventually found guilty and and hanged. But I don't want to talk about the murder and the trial. I want to talk about the situation of children at this time because you speculate what would have happened if he hadn't killed her. And indeed, it's... Again, it's difficult to know this at this distance, but it seems obvious to modern eyes that he's raped her or molested her and then murdered her to cover that up. Like, that's what would happen now. But actually, that seems like, in those days, like, unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, that's the extraordinary thing. If you if you look at the, the details of the trial and, and also of the kind of conversations that go on behind the scenes with, with the lawyers, they can't understand why on earth he murdered her. Completely unnecessary. Eight-year-old girl, OK, let's assume that he raped her. They, they, they can get their head around that. That's very unpleasant. Obviously, he let his lust get out of hand. But there's nothing really in in the kind of conversations around the murder to suggest that it's more disgusting that he did it to an eight-year-old than an 18-year-old or a 28-year-old. So the puzzle really is, why murder her? You'd go to jail, obviously, for uh, for raping somebody, but there's... There's not that absolute sort of visceral horror that we would have now of the difference between somebody who rapes a child and somebody who rapes an adult. You know, the, the absolute appallingness of raping an eight-year-old. There's none of that there. It's it's simply a young man who's been out drinking and let his lust, that's the word they use, run away with him. And so what they can't understand, and this is why there's a huge sort of campaign to get him um, pardoned, is they can't understand. It's completely irrational why he would need to murder her. They just don't understand. It doesn't make sense. I mean, lawyers write in and say, I'm sorry, it's ridiculous. Why, why would he murder her? You know, it, it's, he would just simply go to jail for a few years for rape. But the murder makes no sense at all. He must have been mad. That's the point. And as you said, he would have gone to prison, but only for a couple of years. Whereas what he does, you know, he murders her and therefore he'll be hanged. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it does. It doesn't make any kind of sense. I mean, I, I think my, my feeling would be he was a, a very, very respectable young man. He was a law clerk from a very respectable church-going family. He obviously had what we would call some mental health problems now, and I, I suspect that it's it's just the poor. He never, he never, ever, ever admitted to having raped her at all. Um, he simply went mad and murdered her. And I suspect it's a, it's a matter of sort of self-image. It's just too appalling to him to admit to the fact that he raped her. It, it is actually easier for his, to keep his sort of, you know, his ego identity intact to say, I went mad and I murdered her, is actually more preferable than saying, I actually sexually assaulted this child. Just to finish off then, just in, in general... To what extent, oh, I mean, you've, you mentioned some ways in which, at the beginning, when we were talking about the book in general terms, about how the Victorians were, were like us in a lot of their concerns about around the body. How else are we different? Let's talk about how we've changed, you know, in terms of, in terms of our attitude to our own bodies. What's different now? 
Well, I, I would think, I mean, first of all, we have at our disposal all sorts of technologies that mean that we can manage our interactions much more. By which I mean, you know, that we're very lucky, neither you nor I smell, for instance. We have, we have deodorants, we have showers. Uh, so we have all sorts of technologies that mean that unless you're very unlucky and you go on the tube on a very, very hot day, you won't be kind of assaulted by smell. We also have a, a very particular ways of making sure exactly on a tube that we don't knock against anybody, wrap up against anybody. Uh, we have, in other words, different sorts of boundaries and technologies that allow us to do that. I also think that we're, we're more able to talk about the body precisely because we have those boundaries in place. I, my, I, I speculate in the book that the reason why Victorians appear not to talk a great deal about these kinds of things, wind or constipation, all those kind of slightly embarrassing things, is that the stakes are so high, it's there all the time, it's overwhelming and so therefore the only way is to really kind of construct a kind of silence and murder around it otherwise you, you would simply be overwhelmed by those sensations I suspect that we are slightly more, we feel safer in our bodies because we actually have boundaries that are slightly more intact, therefore paradoxically we are able to talk about these things uh, much more easily. I mean, I'm amazed what people share on YouTube videos, for instance, about you know their everyday lives or what happens to them in the bathroom. I'm quite staggered, but I suspect that's because, um, well, in that instance, we are at one remove. We're not. We're not standing outside the bathroom door listening. I've been talking to Catherine Hughes. We've been talking about her book, Victorians Undone, Tales of the Flesh in the Age of Decorum, which is out now from Fourth Estate Books. Catherine, thank you so much for coming in and telling me about it. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.